Aloha! Welcome back to Arvinda Show. I'm your host, as always, Andrew Crusoe, and today I'm honored to be joined by Steve Pavelina, author, blogger, speaker, once upon a time podcaster, and so much more. He is probably more passionate about personal growth than anyone else you've ever met, and his articles have been featured in USA Today and The Guardian and a host of other publications. He's also the author of Personal Development for Smart People, a book that I love, published by Hay House. That was way a while ago, but it's worth mentioning. Lately, he's been more focused on online courses. He did a course earlier this year called Stature that is focused on developing your inner character. I'm sure we'll get into that during the interview. And honestly, he's been an inspiration to me since 2005, which seems like 100 years ago in internet times. <laughs> he's just an incredible human being. His personal story is inspiring and amazing. How it just what he's come through is incredible to me. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Andrew. Happy to be here. I have um, I have a lot of questions for you because your your life has been so fascinating. But I want what I'd like to do is sort of start at the beginning and just see how it flows. And if you've listened to any of the other episodes, I know you're a busy guy. The tone of this season of the show, this is season three, has really been about internal listening and listening to your guidance system. So I'm going to sort of try to balance the yin and the yang in this interview and kind of introduce things and then try to lean back and, and not interrupt you. <laughs> so, well, sounds good to me. Because <laughs> that's something that I'm, I'm trying to grow as a person, Steve. So you, <laughs> right, always. Um, so you are currently in the beautiful city of Las Vegas, which is currently closed. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I'm in the beautiful city of Hilo on Big Island, which is also currently closed. How's your day going so far? <laughs> Great so far. Uh, got up at 4.30 this morning, went for a run for about an hour, and then flowed into some work, wrote a new blog post. You know, just a typical work day, actually. Yeah, totally. So you you were born in Southern California, right? Yeah, Santa Monica. Santa Monica. And you were raised Catholic. Yep, 12 years of Catholic school. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have to touch on this, right? Because, like, the your growth journey to me is remarkable. You, you, it took you a while, as it takes us, to, to calibrate to our inner selves or our invisible self or whatever you want to call it. And um, I guess I'm curious... I, I'd love to hear a bit about, because you tell this story, and this is one of your original articles, because I started reading stevepevelina.com like in the early days. I think I came across your site uh, in May or April of 2005, and I came across still one of my favorite things you've ever written, because it's, it's so you, it's so like playful and pushing your boundaries a bit, right? And it's the, you can probably guess what I'm thinking of, it's the 10 reasons why to never have a job. 10 reasons you should never have a job. Yep. 10 reasons you should never get a job. That's <laughs> yeah. probably my all-time most popular article. That, yeah. that one was written in 2006. Oh, my God. Have I dropped a year? It's okay. <laughs> Is this what happens when you get to your 30s? Oh, You shoot. can always Google it. You have, you have a missing year somewhere. Oh, I got a missing year. Maybe it was... Okay. I, I've, I'm getting old. Um, so, but one of your original articles um, before that was talking about when you spent three days in a jail cell. 
Uh, yeah, that was a 2005 one. That was from the uh, that might have been the, the series on on life purpose, essentially, and the the meaning of life. I love that series, and I guess, and I'm, I know you've told this story a bunch of times, but I think my listeners haven't heard it yet. What led you to? Be, I mean, can I be blunt for like a second? Yeah, you, sounds good. You were basically a clinical kleptomaniac in your teens, kind of. Yeah, late teens, like 18, 19. I used to go out and shoplift um, quite a lot. <laughs> um, just going to like all different kinds of stores. And I just did it for the thrill. I mean, a lot of times I would just steal stuff like candy bars or yeah. cassette tapes or CDs or, you know, and, and give it away afterwards. Um, when I was in that <laughs> college, I was, I was living in uh, UC Berkeley at the time at the college dorms and I, I was going to college. Well, sort of going to college. <laughs> Is this when your GPA started with a decimal point? Yeah. <laughs> well, not the first semester. The first semester I passed, I think I got maybe a couple of Bs and a C oh, okay. uh, that first semester. Mm-hmm. And then it started going downhill with the second semester especially. But my, my first arrest for shoplifting was maybe like a month into into school. Right. Uh, I, no, I think it was maybe around October 1989, something like that. Wow. So, so how long did that go on before you spent, because th- th- that time in the jail cell, as you've written about it, and we'll put it in the show notes at, uh, it's mythli as in leopard, um, iguana, because everybody should check out that article and should check out your site entirely. You're, you've got over like a thousand free articles now on personal and spiritual growth. Amazing website. I think you were the number one personal growth website, or probably still are, for like a really, really long time. So how um, that that time in the jail cell, though, I'd love to hear. And I, I know you've talked about it before, but that seems like a major decision point for you in your young life. Yep, it was. Um, I remember it pretty well. Um, it was my fourth arrest. Actually, I'd gotten arrested uh, three times for. Um, shoplifting, which was petty theft. So it was a misdemeanor. And I got off with like community service each time. So I'd have to, you know, clean up trash in the streets and stuff like that. Um, and then the fourth time, I, you know, I got into escalating a bit because I met up with a partner and we started doing this kind of like tag team type of shoplifting thing. And we got more sophisticated with how we were doing it. So we were able <laughs> to steal, we were able to steal more each time. Um, we were stealing sometimes like worth of stuff each time. And we would even go out like for a weekend occasionally and just drive around to a bunch of places and shoplift (laughs) and just fill until we filled up the back of his pickup truck. Uh, And even one time, like we filled up not only the back of the pickup truck, but the cab that, you know, we had stuff on our laps, like just stealing so much stuff. The the, the truck was just filled with stolen goods. And then we just sell them. We'd sell them off later for maybe like 70 cents on the dollar and split the money. Right. Uh, it was not even something I, he was more into the money aspect, uh, but I was just more into the thrill of it. I thought it was just fun um, and just, you, you know, you so both, exciting. You know, that's the one connection I make. And I think that's part of maybe it's in your DNA is you've always been kind of a thrill seeker. Yeah, I tend to be a bit of a stimulation junkie. And that's that that can be good and that can be bad. Like I actually went skydiving one time and I was like, okay. (laughs) Like not as big a deal. Oh, you were super you were sort of nonplussed by I would I want to do that. That's something in my voice. Okay, jump on a plane. I mean, it's it's like five minutes to the ground. It's you know, you fall. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) It's like I can do falling. Um but the, the jail thing was actually way scarier, and because of doing that, 
it was it, it made everything else in my life seem easier by comparison, like starting a business or right. you know taking various other risks and doing interesting personal growth experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- just but just to just to you know continue and finish up that story. Yeah, uh, it was January of 1991, and I remember it was overlapping Super Bowl Sunday because I was sitting in a jail cell in Sacramento on. Um, uh, uh, when the Super Bowl was happening, because I could see like the Super Bowl on a tiny TV from my jail cell. Right. So I, at that point, I got arrested for a felony. That the limit for a felony um, mm-hmm. in Cal- California at the time was like four hundred dollars. So over four hundred dollars, it was a felony, and below four hundred dollars of stealing. You know, wow. the total retail value of the goods you're stealing. Right, right, right. It was a misdemeanor, and so I was stealing four. $58 worth of stuff at the time. And so it just crossed over the felony border, which made it a much more serious, serious crime. And because of my priors, I was looking at something like uh, one to two years in state prison. Yeah. Now that, that would have been probably the sentence, but I might have ended up spending less time if I actually had to go. But be, and so I was in, in jail for three days mm-hmm. on, on what's called an ID hold because I wouldn't, I didn't carry ID with me when I went shoplifting and I didn't tell him who I was. So I gave him a fake name and, and sometimes that worked, uh, <laughs> but this time it didn't cause they ran my fingerprints and they were able to eventually identify me. And then I'm like, Oh, oh. no. <laughs> so that was, ba- that was bad. That's how um, they get you. Yeah. And so I, I go to court and, and they, you know, they basically misprocess it as a misdemeanor. They process it like it's a first offense instead of a fourth offense. And I just keep my mouth shut the whole time. <laughs> keep your damn mouth shut, I <laughs> believe, exactly. was the way that you described yep. it once. Now, was that a computer I, I, thing or like a like an a, I still don't know to this day error? what happened. Like, that would be so what am I supposed to do? You know, how you how do you look that up? It was from nineteen ninety one. So statute I, I don't of limitations. Know. Oh, you just have but to get was, right. Well, the most ridiculous thing was outside the courtroom, they had the docket listed and mm-hmm. it listed my other fake names I'd used for previous arrests, like listed aliases. How can a person have aliases in your system if it's a first offense? That doesn't make any sense. No, no, there's so, no logic behind that. Yeah, so thank goodness for the inefficiency or you know <laughs> stupidity of government or for bad computer programming because the processes are for, uh, first offense and I got off with 60 hours of community service. And then I just thought, I'm done, I'm out. I'm not going to test that again. <laughs> I would and, love. Uh, it's too bad they can't take photos in the courtroom because, like, I would love the f- a photo of your your expression when they say of uh, sixty hours of community service gavel smash. Like, I could tell you what it looked like. It would have looked like <laughs> scared, and then, and then you know, Shock. like scared the whole time because each even when they're doing the the thing that's going to let you off the hook, you still think. At any minute, they're going to look at something, some piece of paper oh, right. that's going to change their mind. And it was only like when I left the courtroom that I was like, <laughs> big, big sigh of relief. Uh, and yeah, and that, you know, while I was sitting in jail during that time, I actually surrendered to the fact that I was going to prison. And it was, kind, you know, it was kind of scary. I'm wearing the orange pajamas, at least temporarily in the county yeah. jail in Sacramento. Well, we were in Sacramento, by the way, because... We had stolen so much in the San Francisco Bay Area, including <laughs> Oakland and San Francisco and San Jose, that we decided we can't keep hitting the same stores too often. So we would yeah. actually drive a couple hours to Sacramento to go steal there. And and then we even started oh, broadening to other stores. And that's that's where things got, you know, bad when we went to a store that we weren't used to. But, Let's go to Rancho yep. Seco. Yeah, we haven't there yet. Oh my <laughs> God! Like, exactly. We we used to go to Fresno, Modesto, you know, anywhere with, <laughs> with shopping shopping malls and things like that where we could, you know, we were used to stealing at certain stores and we get to, good at it. Did you go to Stockton? Yeah, uh, probably. Oh yeah, Stockton. Mm. I think so. 
Um, I remember going to Concord and just all different oh places. Anywhere with a shopping mall, we've probably been there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you, you've led into something that I was curious about and I almost forgot is what was the biggest thing that you stole? Like, how are you? Because I know small stuff. I've, I've whatever. I've only accidentally stole something once and I felt terrible and it was candy. Um, what? <laughs> I felt terrible. Oh, my God. But how do you, you know, like, what was the biggest thing that you stole? Um, maybe a 27 inch television set. I mean, this is not the flat screen kind. This is like the big, you know, cathode ray tube kind. (laughs) They were really heavy. Um, and how do you do, you know, three, $300 sets of pots and pans, um, blenders, coffee makers. We got really good at stealing appliances. That's that's a, but like, are you just like walking out the front door with these somehow? Yep. With a receipt. With a receipt. <laughs> with a receipt. Oh, I don't. Need, I shouldn't even ask how you did that. We don't want people. Yeah, I don't to... know. I don't know if I should share the details. No, of don't. It, it's like a return scam, right? Those are those are tricky. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, where you're returning stuff you never bought. <laughs> oh my god. And so 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 you get this wake up. So you've you've you're sitting in this jail cell and you're like, I'm going to prison. And were you thinking? After I get out of prison, like before they before they make the error, are you thinking, oh, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to be in prison. For, I'm curious about your thought process in that because that's a dark night of the soul. I think you said you were 19. You're like, okay, yep. after I get out of prison, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to go back to school. What were you thinking? I, you know, I was sitting three days in jail, so I was mostly kind of emotional and scared. But then I also just felt like I did this to myself. It was like this weight of responsibility coming down on me. And I had to admit, you know, it was nobody's fault. I wasn't blaming the the security guard who caught me or the cops who arrested me or anything like that. It was just me doing it to myself. And I just thought how stupid and ridiculous this was. And I, and I realized, okay, well, I'll be going away for a while. I kind of knew what the consequences would be. I was caught red handed. There's not much of a defense here. So all right, the next year or two or, you know, however many months, or it's going to suck, but yeah. I'll get through that. And then I'm starting from scratch. I'm kicked out. I was also kicked out of school. Um, I found that out after I got home from being arrested, I believe. Uh, there was a letter from the school telling me I'd been kicked out because I wasn't showing up to classes. And so that's huh. when my GPA started, started with the decimal point because I was ditching class so much. Um, Imagine that. Yeah, you know, I didn't get kicked out of school for the shoplifting directly. I don't think the school even knew about that. It was just yeah. that. You know, although I did get arrested for stealing from the UC Berkeley student store one time. Oh, yeah, that was, I think, my second time. <laughs> um, so nothing was but, off limits to you. <laughs> it was just like at that time. <laughs> yeah, it was just like kind of this leaning into craziness. You know, it, yeah. it, it was definitely like a rebellious phase and uh, kind of shredding my old character and creating a new one who was just kind of this stupid criminal doing, you know, wanting to do anything Stiebel. crazy. It was Stiebel. <laughs> sure. <laughs> was, wasn't that one of the old, like, uh, nicknames tossed around? I think it was back in the forum days or something. I think you talked about Stiebel. I don't, yeah, I don't recall uh, that one. <laughs> no, Stiebel, no, Stiebel was a thing. Didn't we used to talk about Stiebel? Maybe it came out in one of the workshops. I, yeah, that doesn't ring a bell. I don't know. Oh, that's from something. I don't think I dreamt that. Okay, so, uh, so they made the mistake, and then, and then you started changing your life. I mean, that seems like one of the big, what we call, might call like forking paths of your life. It was like, I'm, I, I have to take full responsibility. You know, you're really taking hold of like that, you know, the one side of the, your personal growth pyramid, you're taking hold of that power and saying, I'm going to consciously create my future going forward. I can't keep going in this pattern. It's going to destroy me. 
Yep. And it was it was hard um, because I didn't know where to begin. I wasn't into personal growth at the time. I just realized that the person I was was not working and I had to, I had to change, but I didn't know how. I didn't know where to start. So I started with the most basic stuff, which was like maybe a year or so. I just focused on recovery and not doing anything reckless or stupid, not, you know, don't, not doing shoplifting, not doing stuff that was illegal. I tried to drive under the speed limit. <laughs> I moved back to Aww. LA. I just tried to tried to be basically a good citizen and live a really boring life. I, I reconnected with some old friends from UCLA. And so I used to hang out at their fraternity, almost mm. like I was an honorary member. And they weren't like a loud, crazy drinking, partying fraternity. They were more like a, you know, let's have a games night fraternity type of thing. So it was a pretty chill place to go. We used to watch the original Star Wars trilogy, put those on VHS cassettes and play them throughout the night while we played a, a rousing game of Risk. <laughs> if you remember that board game. Dude. Risk is great. You just have to find people that are committed to it. That's like, that's a four hour commitment, but yeah, I love risk. Yep. It's, it's a long commitment. And if you get knocked out early, it's really boring. <laughs> but yeah. uh, you just, you had to hold under the, the purples. Australia is the key. Instead of taking the risks, I basically just played the board game version, which was, <laughs> you know, a lot more boring and a lot less exciting, but I really had to like tone down the craziness. I guess some people might think of it as, is what they talk about today being a dopamine detox because you can get really yeah. addicted to the thrill and the high of, of doing crazy stuff. It got to the point where, um, you know, I could go and steal a bunch of stuff and my heart really wouldn't even skip a beat anymore. I just wasn't feeling it anymore. So you just have to keep doing more and more crazy stuff to amp up that rush feeling. It kind of reminds me of my my state of mind when it was a couple years I was a couple years older than you when I traveled across the U.S. when I was twenty two, and that was the first time we met in person actually. And when you're using Craigslist to get around and couch surfing, going from like the Midwest to California and Oregon and back, I, I really noticed I did have a different relationship with thrill. I was sort of like, well, that that's cool, and it just it was a totally different um, benchmark. <laughs> I think it's the closest I could compare it to, you know, I don't, I wonder if I'm going to be able to sleep here tonight. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you, when you have those kinds of stretch experiences, it makes other things seem like not such a big deal, yeah. you know, like, Oh, I want to start a new podcast. I want to start a blog. You know, those kinds of decisions, they scare a lot of people and they get all nervous and worried about it. And when you have some kind of reference experience, you can look back on in your past where you'd had some, you know, craziness or trauma or some kind of, you know, wild adventure, it just makes everything else seem that much tamer and less risky by comparison. Because mm -hmm. you think, what have I got to lose? If this is not going to land me in, in jail, like if the worst case outcome is I lose my money or something or get kicked out of my, you know, place to stay, who cares? Right. You're, you're not going to die. A bear probably won't eat you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just it's that, that that funny concept though of like we often allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by ideas or an email, and we don't have we have this funny relationship with flight or flight or you know you know what I mean fight or flight yep. these days, and it's so mental it's so based on beliefs which is a big part of um, your work. I, I just I, so so you were you were in the jail cell you changed your life I think that was the the last normal job you had right in the, that retail job as I recall. Well, yeah, the retail retail job, I got a job um, working for $6 an hour at a video game store in Hollywood. 
uh, that was after the jail experience. And that was like part of my recovery process. And, and just, you know, I just tried to do the most boring job. I mean, it was, it was okay. It was, but it was just, you know, retail sales. It's you're working in a video game store. It's nothing too exciting or profound. Um, and just focused on trying to Mm -hmm. tone my life down and, Mm -hmm. and, that helps, you know. That was good for like a year, but after that, I was like, okay, I need some kind of. You've been bored out of your mind. Something more positive, you know. It's like wanting to stretch in some way, mm-hmm. but not go back to the old path that didn't work. And then you met um, your you met Aaron around that time, right? Your ex-wife. That was, yeah, that was after I went back to school and then graduated from college. So I did go back to to school this time, um, California State University Northridge, and. Uh, I set a huge goal for myself and graduated in three semesters. Um, it basically started over as a freshman and just decided to put all that crazy energy into academics. In fact, when I was <laughs> at Berkeley, my friend said, if you just took all that crazy shoplifting, illegal stuff you're doing, all that energy you put into that and you put it into school, you would graduate faster. You would just soar through it. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I, so I actually tested that idea and they were right. <laughs> uh, I remember reading about, cause you wrote a, a, a fair amount of ar- articles about that. And I remember like, I can't believe this is possible. Like your ability to focus. I mean, I think everyone has these, uh, innate the gifts or pr- propensities, right? And you had this ability to channel that energy. And as I recall, you were listening to audiobooks at almost everywhere, or, or tapes so like Dale Carnegie and Earl Nightingale. Uh, and, and you were able to, I think you double majored, is that right? In, in three semesters or something like that? Yeah. I got a, a degree in computer science and mathematics. And because there was so much overlap between them, right. if I just picked the right computer science classes, I would pick up a math minor automatically without taking a single extra class. And then I realized, well, it's only a few more classes beyond that to get a math major because so much of the computer science and math curriculum is, is right. overlapping. Redundant. So I thought if I just make the right choices, you know, like if I pick numerical analysis for one of my electives, that counts for computer science and for mathematics. And it turns out you can do that as long as you have enough units to graduate. You can, you know, pick up a second degree. So I thought, yeah, why not? So I ended up um, getting a double major. Okay, there's one. There's I just had a question surface that was in the back of my mind like five years ago. This is how long, <laughs> so long and coming this interview's been. Is, well, it was how, six years ago. It might have been. Yeah, right. Exactly. Who knows? I got hit by a car last year, so give me a break. Um, that's a fun story. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I got a concussion and and I didn't have a sense of smell for two months. It was a whole thing. But I, I luckily I have a thick skull and I'm like ninety percent normal now. Uh. <laughs> But my memory okay. is not what it used to be. My anxiety is back down to where it normally is, but my memory is not perfect. Um, but I feel like I'm a better writer now for some reason. It's sort of like <laughs> given me a different perspective on on my writing. And oh, we got to talk about that too. So, but I just I want to make sure we hit some of these like f- real big tent poles of your background because I think it really informs. Um, you're, the way you're working now in a way, it just for people to get to know where you're coming from. Um, so I, my, my, what I was curious about was how many credits did you have going into that? I mean, I fear you had like a few, so it probably helped a bit. I had some, I had some, because I had some, uh, I took advanced placement tests in high school. And so I was able to transfer some of those in. And I also had some credits I was able to transfer in from um, from Berkeley, mm-hmm. but uh, for the most part, I just 
basically started over, um, taking the freshman classes. So I had I had some of the like I think I had maybe like a chemistry class covered and some other and maybe some physics class covered, um, but the computer science stuff I basically just you know started fresh with that and um, I think I think I took thirty one units the first semester wow and thirty nine the second semester and then thir- I think it was thirty seven the third semester <laughs> oh and, and the third semester I even had a uh, I even worked as an independent contractor on um, creating video games for a local software company for a local game developer. So I had a, I kind of had a side job at the same time I was doing the the classes. That's um, that's how you know I, I just basically went all in on studying time management and just figured out how many of inefficiencies there were in the academic system, and I just <laughs> squeezed them all out. And I just you know I, like. Probably in the final semester, I ditched about forty percent of my classes because if I went to say a fifty-minute class, mm-hmm. but I concluded on my own, you know what? They're just going to lecture from the textbook, and I could learn the lesson in half the time, maybe a third of the time, just by reading the text. I don't need to go to the class. I would skip the class. So there was all these little techniques I figured out. It's, right. the, the key was setting the goal to see if I could graduate in three semesters. That was actually my initial goal when I when I looked at the schedule and I saw how many classes I could actually put into my um, into my schedule, I thought it's technically theoretically possible to graduate in three semesters. I'd have to take <laughs> you no know, I'd have to take a lot of units, but it would be doable. And I, I remember one semester the hardest was like I had this one I think I had this one Tuesday one semester where I had like 13 hours of classes in a row, pretty much back to back. So it was like what? starting at 9 a.m. and going till 10 p.m. Because I had a night class from 7 to 10 p.m. <laughs> so you're just like 13 hours in class that one day. And I'll tell you, I ditched that 7 p.m. class quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Because I just, I was like, oh, after 10 hours in class, you know, in a row. I mean, you get like, I think I had like maybe 15 minute breaks between classes all throughout the day. And then Around dinner time, there was like a 45-minute break. Like I think I had a class that ended at 6.15, and the next one didn't start till 7 p.m. So I had a little break for dinner. But I was just basically on campus all day. Uh, and that was that was kind of grueling. I remember the most grueling part was just lugging around a heavy backpack full of books for all those classes. <laughs> so it, it was a lot oh, of classes man. to have in one day. I can't even imagine. It, where were you going to school with this one? That was at Cal State Northridge. In fact, I got—I uh, actually graduated just a month before the Northridge earthquake, earthquake happened. I graduated in December '93, and the earthquake happened uh, in January '94. So, I, if I hadn't done that, it would have been even harder to graduate. And my friends who were still in still in school at the time, they had a hard time getting their desired classes because of the earthquake. Wow. Because it really decimated the campus. They they filled it up with a lot of temporary structures and a lot of the buildings they had to be inspected and so on or couldn't be used because they were damaged. It was really quite a bit of damage. I, I lived, uh, I moved um, just from being across the street from the campus. In fact, there was a parking structure that I lived across the street from, which was essentially pancaked downwards uh, in the earthquake. Whoa. And a month before I moved basically eight miles away. It was still a really violent earthquake. 93. I, uh, I'd moved to Wisconsin three years before that. But I remember the 89 earthquake. Woo. <laughs> that earth- so you, the timing worked out great for you. But when you were doing this, did you have a idea that you, I mean, you were doing the contracting, like you said. Had you, was the idea for dexterity software in, kind of in your head? Did you want to make games when you were 
studying? Was it something you had a goal to do? Um, I was interested in video games. I used to play a lot of video games growing up. I used to steal a lot of video games. I probably stole yeah. well over 100 Nintendo games. Um, in fact, when I was doing the shoplifting stuff, we used to steal video game systems like this, the Nintendo, the Super Nintendo, the Sega Genesis, the TurboGrafx, and we sell them to, to people for like half the retail price. Then we come back to them later and say, are you a little tired of playing Super Mario Brothers? A little tired of playing Keith Courage? You want some, you know, tired of playing Altered Beast? Do you want some games? <laughs> <laughs> and we take orders for the games and we go out and like, you know, shoplift and, and then we could exchange for the games if we wanted to. Um, and, and yeah, and it was crazy. Mm. We, I remember some going out and sometimes like, okay, we have an order. We have to get three copies of Super Mario Brothers 3. That was like a hugely popular <laughs> game at the time it came out. That was a fun game. Everybody wanted Super Mario Brothers 3. It was like just a really crazy popular one. So we were just, we, we, I don't know, we spent so many copies of that one just to give it to all our friends. Oh my God. <laughs> and the Game Boys. The Game Boys were really popular too. You, uh, you were taking orders, Steve. Yeah, we would basically <laughs> take orders. You know, like, okay, the, what, what games do you want? And we would even suggest games for people. So it's like we were like game dealers or something. Oh like my that. God. That's, it, I mean, it's safer than, safer than being a drug dealer. I guess so, yeah. Is, mean, <laughs> Although the games are kind of like, you know, they can be addictive, so. Right. But they're not a schedule one. Probably not the, yeah, not the same type of side effects, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, the, like the, Unless you pay, play like 24 hours without drinking a sip of water or something like that, like on Twitch, as, you know, some people have done. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but that wasn't a thing back then. No, 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 no. So, so, so you, uh, but you, you, you leave college and how soon after any, any, I, this, this part of the timeline is a slightly blurry for me, but you, I know you got married in the early nineties and went vegan in, around the same time. So Aaron and I met, Aaron was my, was my first wife. Uh, we met in March of 94. Amazing person. We met in person and I was already gearing, you know, gearing up to start my own business. I had, I was kind of wrapping up the contract work I was doing in January of, of 94. Uh, I remember still finishing working on it, like after the earthquake happened. And probably just a few more weeks after that, I wrapped it up. And then I thought, yeah, I want to start my own business and, and get something going. But it kind of drift, you know, drifting for a while trying to figure things out and like how I do projects on my own. And I wasn't very um, efficient with doing that. The structure of school is very regimented. So that, that, kind of supplemented my own discipline and I really ha I could really focus on the goal but when I right. didn't have that structure on my own of starting a business it was a lot harder to get up to speed I think a lot of people have that experience if they're used to being in a school environment or a corporate environment that's very structured and then you go and try to do business on your own mm -hmm. you have to you have to create your own structures and you have to create your own accountability for that yeah and you have to become in some ways you have to wear many more hats it's not as specialized when you're when you're starting a business of what's a DBA and how do we do with this and how do we file and yep there was there was so much to learn I mean by that point I'd already written four commercially released games a four pack of games they were all released as a single pack of Windows 3.1 games so I could do the technical side I could do the the design and the coding and right. so on and I teamed up with an with an artist to help with that eventually was that Dweeb? Um, that was later that, that, that was 1999. So this was like five years earlier and, and, uh, 
But I, I kind of drifted through those first five years a lot, not really finding my footing and mm-hmm. just ended up sinking into debt. Mm-hmm. I ended up with about $20,000 in royalties for the other games I did, um, which was really nice to get, you know, $20,000 come into your lap right after you graduate college. Yeah. So I put that into my games business, but then I blew through that in like six months. So it mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't last very long. And then I ended up, you know, sinking into debt trying to figure out how to run a games business. I didn't have a business background, so I really didn't know what I was doing there. And I, you know, all kinds of bad things happened. I got taken advantage of and just, just made, you know, terrible choices and wrong business partners to work with. And it was just, you know, kind of a sucky story and ended up going bankrupt in 1999. So, uh, five years after I started. Right. I think you said you managed to get your way into like 150 K worth of debt, something around $150,000 in debt. Yeah. Basically entirely unsecured credit card debt. So just kind of funding the business with credit cards, which was, You know, kind of not the best idea, but uh, it was a learning you experience. Were, you were young. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, but you know what? That didn't really phase me because of the previous craziness experience. So I just right. kept right on going. It's like declared bankruptcy, go back to work the next day. Yeah, it didn't seem like that scared you. The way that you've written about the bankruptcy, you've written about it, you touched on it a few times in the articles of the over a thousand articles on his site. Everybody should check them out. But in terms of, was it really like not scary for you at all? Like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to file for uh, bankruptcy. Oh well. It wasn't scary. It was, um, it was stressful. Right. You know, just like having to deal with that. Like, you know, at one point, I, um, Aaron and I got kicked out of our, out of our apartment because we couldn't pay the rent. So we had to scramble to find a cheaper place to live. Mm. And we ended up getting a place on a really noisy street where like loud motorcycles would go down the street Ugh. in the middle of the night and wake us up. <laughs> um, so it was. Not the best conditions, but that's where I ended up writing uh, Dweep, that uh, the game that w- really helped turn my business around and and started uh, actually making some money. And that was right after the bankruptcy, then. Yeah, that was that game uh, was released like shortly after the bankruptcy. In fact, I had a I had to declare the game as one of the assets in the bankruptcy. Right. But when they asked me what it was worth, it's just like, I don't know, because we haven't released it yet. It's just a, it's a product in development. It's, you know, maybe right. worth something, may not be worth anything. Yeah. And they, you know, I even had a list of other games, other uh, shower games I released on the side as part of the bankruptcy. Right. And, you know, they asked me if they were worth much. And I said, no. <laughs> and they said, why not? And I said, well, honestly, they're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty which time. Was the, which was the truth. So, you know, they, they were oh. making like collectively, the, I think other four other games that I released were making about $300 a month. So yeah. it was not something the bankruptcy court was interested in as an asset. They didn't care. You know, they're like, you keep the intellectual property rights to that. So I, it was good that I didn't end up losing any intellectual property because that what was that's what was worth the most to me at the time. Right. Huh. Do you, do you feel like in some way those lessons, especially around finances and business, um, in your twenties, cause your twenties were, it was, that was your twenties and the nineties for yep. the most part, um, were somewhat inevitable to, to get you to where you are today or how much of that, how do you look at that these days? So like, well, that was part of my path of growth. And I mean, obviously it was, but it's sort of, some of that feels inevitable. Like you have to stumble your way forward yeah, I mean, some people get lucky, some don't. I'm kind of glad I went through those lessons in my 20s. Um, I was broken in debt for most of my 20s. And I see it as a training camp. You know, I see I see life, even to this day, I see it as a training camp. And I always think about how life is 
training us and what it's you know what it's doing to my character, how all these experiences affect me and how they affect the people around me and um, how they how they train me into a different kind of person over time. And that that's something that I started off with very proactively, you know, because of the recovery period from the shoplifting, I realized I had to turn my character into someone different. Mm-hmm. And so I I often think about when I set goals or take on projects, how they're going to f- affect me as a human being. How will they shift my values or my behaviors or my attitudes, um, you know, build up my experience in different ways. And that's been a really valuable perspective to have mm. is, is choosing projects, not just for the immediate result, but asking yourself, how will this affect me as a person? How will this affect my character? I didn't know that when I stole my first <laughs> cassette tape or CD or candy bar, what that would do to my character. I just saw it as the momentary thrill. But now when I make a decision to get into something new, even a one-time action, I think, what will this do to my character, especially if I continue that or if it becomes a habit? Uh, and I, I become a lot more aware and sensitive to those long-term effects. And so that that to this day helps me focus a lot on on choosing good habits and, and being careful of the actions I take. I remember the one of the first times you wrote about that, Steve, and I don't remember what the article was called. And I was like, I had this big aha moment reading that. I was like, oh man, he's totally right. Especially in terms of, in terms of your occupation, how that shapes your character. I think that might've been what the article was about. And your business, if you own a business, how that shapes your character. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that's such a powerful way to frame it because you are programming yourself with the habits you decide to, to adopt and you're shaping, I mean, how did that come to you? What was, how did that idea, I know it's such a funny question, like where did that idea come from? But was that something that was percolating for a while or? I think it came, I think it really landed with me when I was sitting in jail and I, and I finally connected the dots between what my actions were doing to me as a person. I'm like, you know, it really struck me, the actions I took, they turned me into a criminal Mm because I didn't see myself so much as a criminal up to a certain point. And other people started seeing me that way. And it didn't really quite feel right. Cause I'm just like, I'm just doing this as like a thing for a thrill. Does that make me a criminal? And then I realized it actually does. <laughs> and when that, when that, sunk, <laughs> when that finally sunk in and I thought I'm going to no, not only a criminal, now I'm looking at, I'm going to be a prisoner. I'm like, wow, mm. that's not what I set out to be or do. And how did I end up here? And I just thought through, and I tried to think through it rationally. What did I do that that got me to this point? How did I end up becoming like in a situation where I'm going to end up in prison? Mm-hmm. Um, what got me to that point? And and I realized it was just it was it was not um, it was the the mistake was not making decisions with enough attention paid to the long term consequences, mm-hmm. especially the consequences to my future self. Mm-hmm. I was the one that sentenced my future self to, you know, potentially a, a prison sentence mm-hmm. because of my earlier actions. And that got me really thinking about the connection between how our actions sculpt who we are. And, you know, starting starting first with just the, the consequences of your actions, you know, what that does mm-hmm. to your life. Yeah. But then over time, really thinking about um, how to cure that. And I realized hmm. in order to cure that, situation in order to stop taking those foolish kinds of actions, I actually had to think much more consciously about what type of character I wanted to become. Because if I did that, if I could think about the kind of character I wanted to become, then I could 
set goals and break them down into actions and projects that would make me into that type of character. So for instance, going to school and graduating three semesters, I was thinking about, you know, I want to be an achiever. Mm -hmm. I want to be a person who sets really challenging goals and goes after them and achieves them. (laughs) That's why, that's why I set that kind of goal. It was largely to shift my character in a different direction. And, Mm -hmm. and also it was a goal kind of born out of a bit of shame. I didn't. I wanted to distance myself from the recent past of what I've done with the the arrests and the shoplifting and the craziness, and I wanted to just change my own self image for me, and and that really did it. When I just decided I want to be a different kind of person, and here's what I'm going to do to make that happen. Mm. And then you know, going on into into business, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to be an employee anymore. And to this day, I haven't, I haven't been anybody's employee since 1992 when I worked at a video game store. So that, that was, you know, that, that was a decision. I wanted yeah. to be independent. Um, I, you know, who do you want to be in life? Mm-hmm. Think about how that affects you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like now I, I, you know, I'm a vegan cause I chose to be a vegan mm-hmm. and vegan for over 20 years. And I've been, um, you know, I've been running regularly. Like this morning, I, you know, got up at 30 in the morning, ran five miles or so. And, you know, <laughs> Like yeah. that just that's just normal habits, like part of my day. Yeah. Because I wanna have good energy. I wanna be a character of high energy and good focus and good mm-hmm. concentration. And I found out that cardio exercise is just an absolute key to that. Yep. Uh, there's a great book about it called Spark, um, which is about the the mental benefits of <sighs> cardio exercise. And it's just when I read that book, I was just like, Okay, I gotta exercise. You know, very... Is that the book with the running stick figure on the cover? Um not sure. I don't I I don't recall. I think I don't recall be. the cover of it looks like because it was years ago that I um, encountered it, mm-hmm. and um, I've read it. I've read it twice and just loved it. I have to put it in the show notes. So for people who 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 they're on board with this, and I want to touch on veganism too. I'm, I'm a vegan as well, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But before we get to that, for for people who go, okay, I get it. I want to change my character. I want to I'm going to consciously decide <laughs> the direction of my life, right? Then usually the next step becomes, okay, there's a little bit of self-discipline that has to come into that, right? So you mentioned like about needing a little bit of discipline, and that one I disagree with. I'd say it takes a lot of discipline. And in fact, (laughs) the acceptance of that, you know, we resist that it takes discipline. And that's a problem because if you play a character that resists discipline, you're screwed. (laughs) Because there's so many things in life that require good, strong, high levels of discipline to be able to access them. There's so many rewards and accomplishments and experiences that you just simply cannot access with weak discipline. And so when when I realized that, and that happened a bit later on, when I realized that, it made me decide, okay, I'd better embrace discipline because I didn't want to do that initially. (laughs) Like many people, I saw discipline as like, okay, that's a bad thing. That's fine if you're like uh, in the military or whatever, but you know, if you're a civilian, then you should be more into freedom and you know, happiness and flow and rebellion and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, and that didn't work. Yeah. It just it just made me feel worse about my character. Mm-hmm. And when I invested in becoming a more disciplined character, I found that I just really liked and enjoyed my character so much more. Right. The, the, you know, the, the challenge of doing something um, disciplined, just it made me feel great way better than than being a lazier character or being a less disciplined character um, or being unfocused or, or being unfocused yeah so mm-hmm. focus is another quality you can choose to develop in your character mm-hmm. now i can also 
I can be disciplined and I can also love freedom and spontaneity. I love spontaneity. Sometimes I'll go on spontaneous trips, you know, like <laughs> just make a decision to go on a trip and 24 hours later I'm on a plane or something or I'm, or I'm there. And I, I enjoy that. But the reason that that can happen in my life with and keep my life in balance is that I temper it with discipline. Is that I know, you know, I know when it's okay to do that now and then when I can relax the discipline a bit. But but I have to have that baseline habit of strong discipline, you know, good work habits, good exercise habits, good diet habits, and so on. Otherwise, my life just starts falling apart, and I start feeling worse about myself. Right. Don't you feel like this, there's one step kind of before, at least one step before discipline is actually deciding where you want to go, right? Discipline's like the warrior that can get you there, but... That's how I initially framed it, too. And now I just find that focusing on creating a more disciplined character is kind of its own reward in a way. Like I could just focus on that as, a, as an interesting goal for a while. That's been a big part of my focus for, for uh, this year is, right. uh, you know, doing a lot of running. Uh, one of my challenges this year is to blog every single day. And I've, I've not missed a single day this year. I've, you know, posted something new to my blog every single day. Since Christmas, right? <laughs> I started on December 24. So that's, yeah. you know, yeah, so it's you know, been going uh, well so far. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just keep going with that. And what I love about that habit is it's challenging. You know, at first I kind of wanted to resist it, but after about 60 days or so, then I settle in and I start embracing the habit because I see how it's creating positive ripples in my life. Just that daily habit of writing, of pushing myself to do that and not just pushing myself to do it, but pushing myself to get to the point where I can do it with no resistance where I actually welcome the habit and I embrace it and I don't fight it anymore because mm -hmm. I see the benefits of what it's doing for my character. It's helping me become uh, more disciplined to, to maintain that habit. Um, and I, I like, I like the effects of that. So do you go in with, I mean, okay. Can I pay devil's advocate for a second here though, Steve? Sure. Don't you feel like it's important to pick something that you already feel sort of drawn toward or you already feel some level of resonance with, like you wouldn't want to set a goal for something that, you know, that's entirely repulsive to you, but, oh, the medicine is going to be better than, than the pain it's going to take to get there. I mean, I guess I'm curious, where do you find that balance? Because you already enjoy contributing to the world through your website. You, you're already a great writer. It's something that's already pretty in alignment, not pretty, very in alignment with your life path. Do you see where I'm going with this? Like, where do you calibrate for your alignment when it comes to goals like that? Curiosity is, is one thing that really drives me. Mm -hmm. I wonder how different habits and different experiences will affect me. And mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of the stuff I do, especially these personal growth experiments, are on a short-term basis. As you mm -hmm. know, I'm really into doing 30-day challenges mm -hmm. where I'll pick something and dive into it for 30 days at a, at a stretch. And that teaches me something each time. Some of those become long-term changes. Like <laughs> in 1993, I did a 30-day... 1993 was the first time I remember doing a 30-day challenge. I did it during the summer, and uh, it was between, between semesters in college. And I thought, I just want to try being a vegetarian for 30 days. And I didn't intend to do it long-term. I just wanted to know what it was like to be a vegetarian for a little while, because I was curious about it. And that habit somehow stuck, and I never went back. And then I did the same thing... Three and a half years later, in January 1997, I went vegan for a month, and that stuck too and became a permanent long-term habit. 
So sometimes that curiosity, you know, is is what really helps you figure out what you want. I find that if I'm looking at something from the outside, never having experienced it from the inside, mm. then I do not understand the interior perspective. I do not know what it's really like. And so you could have that grasses greener on the other side effect where mm. you might be polishing it up a bit and, and <laughs> get it you know, through rose-colored glasses, and then you get inside it and you're like, oh, crap, I don't really like this. This is kind of a lot of work. You, you know, that's, <laughs> that's true of career changes and yeah, relationship changes, you know, how, how do you, changing cities, you know, um, how did you know you would like living in Hawaii before you moved there? <laughs> like, like probably some things about it you discovered that you might not like. <laughs> um, yeah. and so if I were looking at like considering moving to Hawaii, what I might do is let's go move there for a month or a year mm-hmm. and, but not overcommit to it and see mm-hmm. if I like it. Then I know what the interior perspective of, his, of it is right, like. I know what right. it's like to be a resident. <laughs> When I moved from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, I rented a place. You know, mm-hmm. my, my wife Erin and I, we rented a house first for a year mm-hmm. to see if we would like it. And it turned out we really liked it. And then we stayed and, and we ended up settle, settling here. But if we didn't like it, we could have gone back to L.A. or we could have gone somewhere else. So we didn't, we didn't overcommit with that. So I like having that kind of testing philosophy with a lot of things in life because I often find that when I test something, it surprises me that, you know, my, my first test of going vegetarian surprised me. So I always had that in the back of my mind. What if I try something I don't expect to continue and it sticks? Or what if I try something that I expect to stick and then I realize I, I don't want to continue? I, I want to give myself that flexibility. So always, always testing it and knowing what it's like is super helpful. It, it prevents a lot of regret later on. Well, I... That's sort of what happened to me with Hawaii is I thought I was just going to be here for the summer. And I did, I unintentionally did hmm, like a 60 day trial. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and how long is it now? Oh, uh, well, you know, I was here for about two years and then I left for two years and I've been back for two years at the end of this month. Okay. Which is a, a whole nother story. Um, I'm loving how this flow of this conversation is going, Steve. Do you have? Do you want to go for another half an hour, or do you have to go sooner? Sure. I'm I'm open the rest of the afternoon. So because this is just a lovely. Uh, I'm really enjoying this, and I feel like we have a couple more avenues to explore. Sure. But you were one of the first people to. I, do you, I wonder what article that was where you were talking about the value of the ins, being on the inside or being on the outside of an idea. And if you're on the outside looking in, you really have no idea what the reality of that is. And you have to be on the inside, dude. And that's the value of those 30-day trials, of which I've done a few too. And I, it's been so fun watching you do these over the years and often seeing the pronounced results, like months, you know, six months, 12 months after you've done them. A great one, and you probably knew this was coming, uh, it was your polyphasic sleep, <laughs> your polyphasic sleep trial which was just fascinating to watch. I know you're very few people can be polyphasic in this society in a way that's really harmonious. I think it's kind of, it seems challenging to me. I haven't done it though. I'm on the outside looking in on polyphasic sleep, but I know for people who don't know, do you want to talk about a little bit about what polyphasic sleep is? You're probably better explaining it than I am. And maybe just like a lesson you pulled out of that. Cause you got featured on a bunch of places for doing it. It's such a fascinating consciousness experiment. I feel like the interview wouldn't be complete without us touching on polyphasic. 
Sure. Um, that was something I learned about from the internet. I just, uh, some other blogger had written about it and I thought that sounds absolutely fascinating and weird and kind of want to try it. <laughs> uh, so the there's a number of variations of it. Polyphasic just means many phases. So mm-hmm. it means sleeping, not just in one, you know, one long stretch of, of slumber each night, but breaking it up throughout the day. And the version I did was probably the hardest. <laughs> uh, I didn't quite know how hard it would be at the time, but, uh, it was. I think some people call it the Uberman schedule. That's what I saw you know, people referring to it at the time. But it's basically you started out on hard mode. That doesn't sound anything like you, Steve. Yeah, well, <laughs> I didn't know how hard it would be. I was like, oh, going without sleep, sure. You know, that was so, sarcasm. Um, I leaned into it, and and it was a fun adaptation period. But the the version I did was you sleep twenty minutes at a time, every four hours around the clock. So, for instance, you might take a 20-minute nap at 1 a.m., 5 a.m., 9 a.m., then 1 p.m., 5 p.m., 9 p.m., and that's all you sleep. There's no long nighttime stretch, and you just do that continuously. So you're basically living your life in three-hour and 40-minute blocks of being awake. Now, one of the dumbest questions I get ever is people telling me, you know, I still get questions about that to this day. That was back in 2005 to 2006 I did <laughs> so for five and a half months. I know. One of the dumbest questions people keep asking is like, I have, you know, I have a full-time job and can I do this? No, no. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you know, it's like if you, if you can't get the nap breaks in, you can't yeah. do that. You know, if you don't have the way to live your life in three hour and 40 minute chunks and don't have access to nap breaks all, you know, all the time. You can't really do that. Um, I try. I, I did it. I actually went on one trip during that time. I think it was to the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and oh, I remember wow. like having to br- take breaks and take naps, like going through Golden Gate parks. And I'm like, okay, got to pull over, take a nap <laughs> in the car or in the park or something, right. and then you can go back to doing stuff. And then, yeah, it was it was uh, weird. Like Aaron and I were in a hotel room, I think in uh, <laughs> Emory, Emeryville, and oh, and Pixar Land. Yeah, actually, well, back back then and when, um, yeah, I don't know if Pixar was there at the oh, time. Oh, that's a good point. This is the before times. Not sure what, not sure when they started, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, when I I used to live in Emeryville too in the in the nineties, and that area was just like where Pixar is, was just like old warehouses and things. I think. Um, oh it, right. What, it, and then I went back more recently, and it's all been you know um, gentrified essentially and just made into a whole different shopping area. Don't you feel, I feel like being polyphasic would lend itself to driving across the country. <laughs> I don't can... <laughs> know. I don't. I mean, I guess if you get really good at sleeping in the car, sleeping in the car was not super restful for me. Right. But to, but to this day, from doing that experiment, I'm just awesome at taking 20 minute naps. Like almost always, I could just go to sleep. Uh, sometimes within seconds, like I can literally fall asleep. Sometimes in. <laughs> One second or less. <laughs> I think Rochelle told me once that you have this uncanny ability, yeah, to fall asleep in less than five seconds, and she doesn't even know if yep. you're asleep. It's like, oh, oh, he's asleep now. Yep, I didn't <laughs> used to have that. Like, you know, we might go to bed, and then she'll say something to me, and I'm like, okay, and I, you know, we have a little conversation, and then I'm thinking, okay, I'll go to sleep, and I fall asleep, and then she starts talking again, and I get scared awake. <laughs> she's she's scared me awake. Probably hundreds of times by now <laughs> uh, since since we've been in a relationship because so she doesn't, you know, she knows how fast I can fall asleep, but she can't necessarily tell that I've 
gone to sleep in like the one or two second pause she's done. And I didn't realize she was going to continue talking. <laughs> I'd love to know how common that is because I would love to have that ability. It almost makes me want to try polyphasic sleep. Yeah, I don't know. I, tricky, I, you know, there's like a, a apparently there's maybe some genetic aspect to it. There's a All lot right. of people who just don't believe it's possible. I've seen these long write-ups by people <laughs> just, you know, saying that you can't do it. It's not possible. I was like, yeah. okay, whatever. You um, clearly but, disproved that. But... But, well, there's other, there were other people doing this too. I've met some of them and they, you know, we had conversations about it, but we, you know, but the, by and large, most people who try it just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Now there could be a number of factors there. For one, I was vegan at the time, and maybe that's a factor. Mm. Uh, it could be genetic. It you know, could be the fact that I had a lifestyle that could adapt to that very easily. Mm. Um, I don't think it was all-out self-discipline because that's what people seem to s- suggest, that it's like you have to have this iron will and this iron self-discipline. I think it had more to do with just the strategy and maybe mm. maybe some genetics, maybe some habits that supported me. But like one mm. thing I found was the the hardest part to stay awake was between the 1 a.m. and the 5 a.m. naps. You know, mm. I could push myself to stay awake till 1 a.m., uh, but when I, was, when I was adapting, it's really tough to stay awake during that time. And even while I was still doing the polyphasic sleep mm. and I got used to it, the 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. period was often the hardest to stay awake. So mm. I tried different strategies there. Sometimes I would go out, since I live in Vegas, I would go out and play poker during that time. Okay, three hours and 40 minutes window to go play poker and that come back. That sounds fun. I heard you're pretty good at that. You used to count cards and stuff, right? Well, that was at blackjack, but... Uh, oh, oh, you're right. You're right. I'm getting that mixed up. A little bit harder to count cards in poker. <laughs> yeah, but I was just playing low-limit poker, and I could win a little bit of money there. I was not betting a lot. I was, like, playing the 2 to $4 tables, and I might, I might, on average, I might make, like, $2 an hour, but it passed the time. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because your body's sending you these signals or like evolutionary signals. Oh, it's it's nighttime now. Like at some point, you're like, oh, probably should sleep. It's yep. 3 a.m. And you're pushing against that. It wasn't it, poker wasn't great, though. I mean, I tried that some nights, but I found, you know, what actually worked best was cooking. Hmm. Uh, you know, TV would put me to sleep. Reading would put me to sleep. Uh, if I tried to exercise, you know, it would kind of fatigue me more and then I get tired afterwards. Hmm especially doing it in the middle of the night. My body just didn't like exercising too much in the middle of the night. But cooking was great. So I, I would go mm. to the kitchen and grab a recipe book and just make some dishes. And what that would do is it would give, it would give me some mental focus mm. and also keep me up on my feet for most of that time. So I didn't not often get sleepy. It mm. kept me moving, but not in such a way that it fatigued me or wore me out. So, you know, I would just do a bunch of cooking. <laughs> and <laughs> And, and, you know, my wife would wake up in the morning and, you know, find out like, oh, you made sweet potato curry. Awesome. <laughs> oh, find all the stuff that was cooked during the night. Uh, so that that was a good strategy. I don't know. I don't know if other polyphasic sleepers like what they were doing to stay awake during those <laughs> nighttime hours. Uh, I think it was, you know, more or less a struggle for everybody to get through, through the adaptation period. But but uh, finding little tricks here and there really helped cooking. But it sounded like after doing it for a few weeks, because you did this for a while, right? You did this for like several months. Yeah, five, five and a half months total. And I stopped because it was just too weird socially. Yeah. It just, I felt like being up all night by myself, it got kind of lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't, like my family was not up all night. So right. um, it was like, I don't have, have these hours of empty space by myself. And it just... It, a lot of people look at it like 
they see it as the 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 productivity you know angle and um, just how awesome it will be to have 22 hours of waking time because <laughs> you're only sleeping two hours total a day you know six naps times 20 20 minutes so uh, but 22 hours a day is a way lot more than you need and I I kind of liked the the flow of the day I kind of like having the end to the day. Mm-hmm. Because the day doesn't end with a 20-minute nap. Mm-hmm. It sometimes feels like, when you get used to it, it feels like you've been sleeping a couple hours when you sleep 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it, it does feel like you've got some deep sleep because you get this time dilation effect. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still weird when you realize how long a day is. And when I when I realized, you know, at one point, I realized now it's Christmas. But for <laughs> me, it's like the same day as Halloween. It's like the same <laughs> continuous day. There's been no break. It's been discontinuous. Why does it feel like Halloween since Christmas 2017? Yeah. It just, and then it's like New Year's and it's like still the same day and it just won't end. It, I don't know. It's like psychologically, it became increasingly uncomfortable and socially. Hmm. Physically, I got through the adaptation, but I just didn't want to keep doing it for the, you know, the, the, the feeling of being so out of sync with the rest of the world. And it also feels like, you know, you get these 20 minute flashes and it'd be really interesting to hook you up to like an ECG or something like that to see how deep or even like a brainwave monitor, because, you know, you're, you're in Delta, but how often are you able to dip lower than that? You know, usually we go in and out of this, these REM cycles of 90 minutes alternating. Right. So I wonder if your body is able to regenerate as much. Then. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I don't have that kind of data on it. I wasn't doing any kind of you know special monitoring of myself, or <laughs> right. I don't, didn't have any kind of special equipment, so I have I have no idea um, what that would report. Well, you 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 bring up an interesting point, Steve. Of like, yeah, you had a family at that time, and you you there were like kids in the house when you were yep. doing this, right? How old are your kids? You have two kids. Yeah. Well, at the time I was doing that, uh, my son was two, and my daughter was like five. Wow. So, yeah. Was that challenging in terms of noise? Or I guess your space has got enough. No, we we had a two-story house, and the bedrooms were upstairs. So I would just mostly stay downstairs. But, you know, the kitchen was downstairs. So it was kind of like I had the downstairs to myself at night, and then they had the upstairs to themselves at night. But... I got a little impa- I got a little impatient. It's like, okay, it's like six eight. <laughs> Let's get up, people. You know. So I did this kind of thing, which was sort of nasty. Called uh, I called it bear bombing because I would call them bears because <laughs> there was there was hibernating. So I, I referred to my family members as bears because it seemed like they were always sleeping for the winter. It oh like no. It seemed like they were sleeping so much of their lives, you know. And I just thought, okay, so I would I would get a little. Um, like pocket um, digital stopwatch kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'd set a timer on it to go off in like two seconds and I'd open the door to the one in the bedroom and I'd set the, you know, set the timer to go and I just toss it on the bed and then close the door. And I would just like, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> it was like throwing a, you know, oh, a, a, grenade. a alarm clock grenade. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> just to wake him up. I feel so like I should warm was... our listeners. Uh, Steve is, he is not, Steve is, has a very special mind and your your performance may vary. Don't compare yourself to Steve. I've fell victim to comparing myself to Steve sometimes. Don't do it. We all have our different gifts. Well, I feel like we should do as Bruce Lee and we should not compare ourselves to others. We should, we should compare ourselves to our past selves. Yes. That was his recommendation. So I kind of take that one to heart. 
So, hey, if I'm, yeah. I'm you know, I, 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 applaud, I applaud myself for staying out of jail all this time. <laughs> That's the thing. You, you, I'm so glad that you've joined the light side of the force because the dark yep. side wanted you. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't very good at the dark side, you know. <laughs> You're pretty good, though, smuggling that stuff out and not getting caught for that long. I mean... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was like 16, 18 months, something like that. So it, it ran its course. You could have been running a mob by now. You could have, <laughs> you could have been the head of an MLM. You missed your shot, Steve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just didn't like the effects. Big it's, fat cat on top of the pyramid. Yeah, but, uh, you know, that was it was a good experience to go through because it taught me, you know, it was like some courage training, but it also just showed me where I wanted to take my values. I don't think I would have had as much... Um, as much control over my character path going forward mm. and as much say in what kind of person I became, if I hadn't had that reckless time and, and went through that experience and just saw, saw mm. very clearly how my decisions were screwing up my life badly. Mm. Mm. I think, I think many people have that feeling, but it's, it's like, you know, what I was feeling it on a scale of one to 10 is like a 10 at the time when I was in jail, many people it's, it doesn't get past a seven. And you feel like something's not right in your life. You don't like where it's heading, but you don't feel like you're totally in control <laughs> of steering it. You know, and it's like this malaise enters in and you just sort of settle, settle for yeah. less person you really want to be. And I, I've noticed a lot of people who really sculpt their lives into something mm -hmm. that's desirable for them. They've often had some pretty bad experiences in the past, maybe trauma or some other you know experience that just yeah. shocked them. And they just decided, I got to steer this person <laughs> better. Steer your character. Yep. Well, you talk, I love the way you, you bring your, if for people who aren't as familiar with your work, um, I love the way you bring, you, start, you bring this perspective of life as a game, but, but in a playful way, but also a game that has ramifications. And you really think of it in terms of, you know, you're sculpt. You're literally like a character in whether or not this reality is a simulation or not. I love the way you bring you bring that sort of um, programmer side. I see that as I see that as your programmer side of like, this is you can reprogram your reality. I mean, I know we we went on a walk through Las Vegas once, and you were saying how one of the things you like about Las Vegas is it's changing so much. It's almost like the Matrix. The codes being rewritten so often. I feel like all of that is interrelated. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably mentioned something like how Vegas treats physical space like software. You yeah. know, they can rip out a, a you know, a, say a, a dining establishment and stick in a bar or a gift shop or something. They just they, they're constantly reconstructing their physical space. Now they're having to do it again with the the social distancing. You know, mm -hmm. it's just uh, learning this morning about how Vegas is planning to reopen and. I hope they don't go too fast too soon <laughs> for the sake of other people's lives. Yeah. Uh, but I'm seeing, you know, they're going to have like blackjack tables instead of like six people at a blackjack table. They'll have three of <laughs> them spaced out more okay. at a craps table. Instead of 15 people, they'll have six. Can you imagine mm. playing craps with just six people at the table? That's going to be kind of interesting. interesting. They're going to shut down every other slot machine and remove the chairs so that there's space between the <laughs> slot machines. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's been kind of, as an aside, it's been really your commentary on the pandemic. I don't want to make this too timely because what's great about your work is so much of it applies just as much here in 2020 as it will in 2030, 2040, 2050. 
but I would be remiss if we didn't touch on just, it, it's been funny seeing your reactions to the coronavirus coverage. And, and, and you're like, the mayor is an idiot. <laughs> it's like, we need to make sure that, was it the mayor's? No, the mayor wanted to reopen, but yeah. the gov- governor was mayor like, no, 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 no. She wanted to basically use Vegas as a Petri dish for experimentation and, uh, you know, just like, screw you. <laughs> Yeah. Or no. In fact, you know, in fact, uh, there was one local poker player who was pretty outraged and has been starting a recall campaign <laughs> to, to get her uh, removed. Get the, get the mayor removed? Yeah, exactly. Get the mayor removed, like yeah. hold, hold an emergency election and get her out. And um, he's already been collecting petition, uh, collecting signatures or something like that. I think he needs something over 6000 signatures to make it happen. And mm. who knows? Because there you know, people in, who live here in Vegas. You know, our death rate is not as high as in some other places mm-hmm. in this whole state of Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the population of Nevada lives in Las Vegas. But in the whole state of Nevada, we have, uh, I think, 300-something, you know, who've, who've passed away. It's maybe coming up on 400. Uh, and somewhere in the— It's you relatively know, maybe, low. Maybe 6,000-something infections. I haven't checked the numbers lately, but it was, like, right. somewhere around there last time I checked. Right. Uh, and it's— you know, but the main risk is all the tourists coming back yep. and bring from places with much higher infections. Yep. Say like, same say thing like here. Same thing here in so, Hawaii. Same thing with Hawaii, because Hawaii, you know, Hawaii, Wyoming, they have very low death rates. Yeah, and we're doing you well. Know, you bring all the tourism back, and that's that's a big risk. So, um, yeah, it's it, you know, the tour the tourists will infect the locals who work in the on the strip and the right. and downtown the casinos and food services and so on and then they bring it all back to the rest of the community right. so the locals are not necessarily wanting the place to open too soon even the mm-hmm. people whose livelihoods depend mm-hmm. on it you know the local vibe i'm seeing is people want to be somewhat cautious and smart about it especially mm-hmm. the people who who are going to have a high chance of um getting infected just mm-hmm. through interactions with so many people I think the one silver lining I've seen about this, though, is that um, some of the preliminary antibody testing, it looks like the people, uh, this is all I've been talking about for the last three weeks, but it, it seems like the reinfection rate from the data I've seen is, is pretty, pretty, pretty low. So it's, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's going to be interesting to see how many people have actually had this. We haven't done a large-scale blood antibody test yet. So hopefully it's, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a challenging time. It's really. Yep, it is. And, and I mean, the Las Vegas economy is going to be. I mean, it's it's highly affected by this, of course. Right. I mean, the unemployment rate is pretty high now because you know everything's shut down. It's the whole city runs on tourism. Yep, sounds familiar. You want to try a really <laughs> weird pivot? This is fun. Sure. So, if you were to look at this pandemic through a subjective reality context, ellipsis. <laughs> who you know because subjective reality is the idea of i don't know if the oneness is built into it but it can be of like you you are shaping reality based on your beliefs and reality is very pliable how how do you define subjective reality these days because you had an amazing series on it years ago and you were you looked like your whole life as a dream for several months it was very fascinating to read Um, i almost felt like i was reading your journal yeah, we have we have a whole course on this um, sixty day course on this called submersion, which is like subjective reality immersion. So uh, the the idea though is is imagining that you're living in a dream world or a matrix. Uh, it doesn't necessarily respond immediately to your thoughts and beliefs. It's not 
that it's not I'm not saying that you have total control over it. However, uh, you do have an interface to it and that you can communicate with it. So you can communicate with reality. So if you are living in some kind of programmed simulation or some kind of dream world and you can communicate with the simulator or with the dreamer, say, say just as by just like I'm talking to you now, saying your intentions aloud at conversing with it, uh, you might be able to influence it in some way. So I did a lot of experiments testing along those lines. So like to put the coronavirus situation, you know, to frame that, it's a very individual thing. So if, if, this is, if you're looking at this like this is my reality and I'm, this, I'm in this simulation or I'm in this dream world, uh, why would my dream or my simulation bring up this virus thing? What's the point? And it's always an invitation. And so is it, it's an invitation to what, though? You know, and so you have to look at it from your own personal perspective. Uh, if you don't, then you get into problems where you're projecting it onto other people who may not even be real <laughs> So, right. uh, from that perspective. So that, that's where people get really messed up is they say, well, what about how to affect you know, this baby over here? And I'm like, are you the baby? No. Then you can't use that perspective. You got to just use it <laughs> in, a, in a self-referential way. So the way I see it may not be the way you see it or the way anyone else sees it, but the way I see it is uh, it, it's been an invitation for me to focus more internally, like mm-hmm. on my own character, mm-hmm. because it's a break from all the external socialization, you know, this conversation notwithstanding. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've had to cancel all the in-person meetups. You know, my wife and I are having groceries delivered. It's uh, It's been a lot of uh, changes. We actually just went grocery shopping yesterday for like the first time, I think. Uh, Two months? Yeah, at, least, at least together. <laughs> so yeah, we went to Costco, which was co- you know, quite an experience with everyone wearing masks and stuff and, and Trader Joe's as well. Uh, wow. And that was, you know, it was an interesting experience just seeing, you know, the, their interactions with people and, you know, how it is. But it's because it's cocooned us so much, and we're used to working from home, but now it's like even more cocooning. Mm-hmm. It's helped me focus more on my habits and thinking, you know, more about um, where do I want to take my character. Mm-hmm. And it's been super productive as well. Like I've been getting so much work done. It's been great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, income wise, this year is like my best ever so far, which is nice. Um, but yeah. partly just because of the extra focus from just being at home and like, okay, you know, just uh, stay here and work, uh, or, you know, have interesting experiences. And, you know, we feel very fortunate because we have mm-hmm. an online business. And so mm-hmm. it's been very modest adaptations to, <laughs> to, to flow with that, but it's really been helping me, um, hel- helping me a lot, just, you know, really focusing deeply on my goals. And, um, uh, I, you know, I realize I have a tendency to spread myself too thin sometimes, you know, taking on too many social obligations, mm-hmm. uh, even when it seems like it's not a lot, it can really take my focus away. It's like how much mental RAM is that taking up? It's, it's, yeah, you know, and now I'm just like going through project after project, you know, close that project, next project, let's start this, <laughs> get it done, finished, close that loop, next project. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, one project at a time. A project may take a few days, it may take a few weeks, but just, you know, one by one by one, just going, working on these projects that are helping me achieve my goals. And it's really nice, you know, both on the personal side and the, and the professional side. So I, I don't know when things open back up again, it might make me reevaluate how I want to do certain things in my life. I echo that as well. It's what you're talking about kind of reminds me of like 500 things. But one of the things is when you declared social bankruptcy, I think it was like, I just remember that year you started out by saying, I'm declaring social bankruptcy. <laughs> and my first impression, you know, blog post and 
ostensibly that a lot of people that you well, obviously a lot of people you respect read this you know you're like you you like super rank and google and you you've killed it and just to say i'm declaring social bankruptcy publicly inspired me so much i was like steve is not afraid of social backlash at all are you afraid of any social backlash at all does does what's uh, it was just amazing to me like you you really your own um your own opinion of yourself seems to be foremost and i think it allows you to take risks and do things that most people can't or don't let themselves i'd, I'd say i'm a much harsher judge of my own character than other people are <laughs> um and so when there's a social backlash, I realize it doesn't really have much to do with me. It just has to do with what I represent to other people. Because right. most of the people doing the backlashing don't even know me that well. Yeah. My, my good friends, you know, business partners, things like that, they don't backlash against me because they know me well. And they, <laughs> they know me and they accept me as I am. They just know that's part of my personality to explore and try different things and stuff. So uh, they just they tend not to have a problem with any of that kind of stuff. The ones who do the backlashing would be <laughs> people on social media who have never even met me in, yeah. in their entire lives. Uh, and so they're not backlashing against me, so I don't really take it personally. I just I just see it as like, this has nothing to do with me. And part of the reason is like, I would write an article and I'd get a piece of feedback on it that would just praise it as like the best thing I've ever written. And the next email would be, you know, ripping into the article is the worst piece of crap <laughs> I've ever written. And I, I almost want to like send, you know, like forward both yeah. emails to people that sent them. <laughs> like here, here's another opinion. <laughs> you have this opinion. I, I read that uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer would, did that once and I thought that's great. <laughs> that's hysterical. Um, so, you know, in both cases, I might just respond to the email with a smiley and just, you know, you take it in stride. Uh, but you don't have to, you don't have to take that on for yourself. You don't have to, um, you know, take criticism so personally. When you realize yeah. it's, it has way more to do with the critic. You know, if somebody yeah. wants to spend time writing a 500 or a thousand word email telling me what's wrong with me, <laughs> I, I, you know, I just, Steve, you're going saying, to hell for that. Exactly. <laughs> I get those sometimes. The ones filled with Bible quotes. Like, oh. This is not even about me. This has nothing to do with me. This is just, it's about what I represent to that person. I still struggle with that though, Steve. I don't know why, because I'm in a sort of an empath. And that's one of the more interesting things that I've grown through is seeing that affect me less and less because uh, having six books out and just looking at the reviews and seeing how that can vary. And also just email. Uh, it's such a beautiful growth experience of letting that go more. I think I still have more to go, but it, it sounds like you got used to that really early on. I mean, you, you're taking off really fast. It seemed like that was that yep. a difficult calibration period for you. I mean, probably not as difficult as it would have been for me. <laughs> I, th I think I calibrated on that kind of thing before I started my blog. You know, when I, when I went through the shoplifting stuff and the arrests, mm -hmm. I disappointed myself and I disappointed all the people around me. And I got to the point where nobody expected anything of me, you know, like everybody thought poorly of me. Right. Having to deal with that and go through the recovery period, it just makes the stuff that happens on social media, it just doesn't get to me because they, they're just not digging deep enough. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're lazy. They, you know, they, they, seriously, I think they suck at criticizing because yeah. what, I, what, I, what, I, what I had to go through, you know, where I harshed on myself, I'm, I, I was way better at it than anybody else has been. So the stuff they're getting, it just doesn't, it doesn't dig deep enough. It's not getting to my heart. It's just deflecting off the surface. It's just bouncing off my skin. You know, it's like they, they're just not doing a very good job. Uh, so I, you know, so I just you think, could beat on yourself better than they could. 
I think my critics suck. I think I could be way better at criticizing myself than anybody else who has, you know, especially people who've never even met me. Yeah. So they just don't have a chance. And so I found that over time, almost all of my critics from the early years of blogging, they've long since they've long since given up. <laughs> I, I think maybe I just made them cry at some, you know, they're just like, I can't handle it. You know, every time I criticism and criticize them, all I get back is a smiley face. <laughs> So I, lo- I love responding to critics with a smiley face, you know, just colon, close parentheses, send. And, uh, and it's, it's great because uh, what do they do with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it shifts the energy in a big way. Yeah, it's like I'll just, I'll just um, smile at them. And, but, you know, every once in a while, somebody will give me a piece of criticism and I'll be like, yeah, that's kind of valid. Mm-hmm. But chances are it's something I've already identified in myself that I want to work on. Mm-hmm. It's rare that somebody points out something that I'm not already aware of. And I and and if it's if it is something new and I go oh okay is that you know that's how people are perceiving me, and I think is that is that bothersome to me? Do I have a problem with that? Is that something I really want to work on in my character? How do I feel about that? Right. A lot of times people criticize me for stuff that I feel totally fine with. You know, like criticize me for being a vegan all day long. <laughs> you, have, you have no chance of knocking me off of that course. Same. There's no chance. Same. You know, I've heard all the arguments. They're just all ridiculous. They just mm. all bounce off me. There's nothing that's going to... Steve, gonna... where are you getting your protein? What about B12? <laughs> yeah, that, that one again. Uh, <laughs> you get your protein. I laugh so well, much, though. It's like such you know, a... <laughs> it's, it's jumping the shark at this point. Like, all you have to do is just a little bit of research. It's so funny. Yeah. So, um, so when it's, you know, when it's that kind of surface stuff, it's just, it doesn't have um, that kind of impact. But I think... I think what really helps you build a strong foundation against, um, you know, against criticism that's off base is you really, really got to get your own character on base. You really got to get yourself to the point where you like and appreciate and love and respect and honor the character that you are and the character that you're becoming. This mm-hmm. is not being, being free of faults. You can have a lot of, you know, you're still working on. But as long as you're working on it and you're making progress and you're on a path of growth and you like the direction you're going – then other people's criticism is just, it's not going to put really much of a dent in that because you're going to feel so fulfilled by the path you're on. And that's that's how it's been for me. I'm so fulfilled by the path I'm on and I'm so excited about that. And I draw so much energy from that that uh, I, I think when you get yourself to that state, for the most part, the mm. critics don't bother. I get very little criticism this, these days, especially relative to my web traffic. Mm. Uh, you know, I, it could go several weeks before I get even a even one critical email. Wow! And I think it's just because people they I think that I think there's some kind of energy communication between us. To be honest, I, I think see so. Some of this, and I think when you when you really feel good about who you are, and you're not worried about being criticized. It doesn't attract it. But mm-hmm. when you are feeling insecure and you know your life is quite <laughs> working, then I think you feel much more vulnerable. And I think that's what critics seek out. I mm, think they, they smell it. Vulnerable. They prey upon the weak, mm-hmm. you know? And, and when you when you feel that weakness in yourself and you feel like, I'm not where, really where I want to be, I'm not really heading the right direction, then you start putting up shields with you know to, mm. to the critics and that's what the critics can sniff out from a mile away oh that person's very shielded let's go after them <laughs> ah, or looking at it from a subjective reality context you're attracting that element of reality in if you're not in alignment if you if you have doubt then you might see that doubt reflected you know you used to talk about like an alpha reflection and a beta reflection from the universe that can happen with criticism or negative experience too 
right? Exactly. And then you can <laughs> see it as an invitation from reality to, hey, work on this part of yourself. Yeah. Pay attention to this. If the criticism does get under your skin, yeah. maybe it's because there's something there that needs to be worked on. Maybe, you know, like if uh, somebody criticizes you for not exercising and that bothers you, mm-hmm. well, maybe you should be exercising. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh. Maybe that- Maybe that's the reason it's getting to you, because if it's not getting to you, then it's probably not something you need to work on. And in which case, if the criticism will subside tremendously if it's not getting to you. But if something is getting to you, you know, when you get criticized in a certain area and it gets under your skin, that's uh, that you can see that as an invitation you know, from your reality. Like the simulation is saying, hey, Andrew, you got to work on this area. You know, I'm going to keep breaking critics up in your reality and they're going to keep picking away at you until you accept this invitation to work on this. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of part one. We talked for so long that I had to break this up into two parts. There's even going to be an after show on my Patreon. But before I leave you, I want to say a big mahalo to Steve for sharing much of his afternoon with me. It was truly an honor and hilarious. It was such a delight. Also, if you've enjoyed this interview, there are more. And iTunes is the easiest way to find them and get new ones as they come out. Just search for Aravinda Show on there. That's A-R-A-V-I-N-D-A. And if you use Instagram or Twitter, I'm at Hello Crusoe on there. That's at sign, the word hello, C-R-U-S-O-E. And I post samples of interviews on there when they come out, plus behind-the-scenes glimpses of my life here in the Big Island of Hawaii. So it's a lot of fun. And be sure to check out stevepavlina.com. His website kind of changed my life, especially in college. And he's posting his stuff on Facebook now. And, uh, you know, it's worth looking at his online courses and Conscious Growth Club. The work he's doing there is pretty incredible. And he has over a 1,000 articles on personal growth. They're all free. Of course, all these links that we've mentioned will be available in the show notes for this episode over at Mythly. That's M-Y-T-H dot L-I as in lizard iguana click on aravinda show or aravinda spacecast depending on the label that i'm using this month and you'll be able to find show notes for the episode and all the great shows as well as free samples of my books including of course my true hawaii action memoir Ten Thousand hours in paradise the incredible story of what happened to me when i moved from wisconsin to lower puna on the big island of hawaii a story so true that I had to give everyone pseudonyms and so full of magic that you won't be able to put it down. And you can get the first 20% of that by going to my website and clicking on get three free books. Really easy to find in the menus. Also, and this is very important, if you've enjoyed this interview and want to support this show, the best thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. They're the same thing now. It really helps rank the show higher and get these interviews to more people. Even a one-sentence review helps more than I can say. I'm Andrew Crusoe. Thanks again for listening, and we will return with the second and final part of this interview in which I make a rather surprising admission, and Steve delves into subjective reality, beliefs as lenses, and fascinating dives into the variety of human relationships, including open relationships. You'll really want to hear the second part. I'm just going to say that. See you next time. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. And aloha.